scripture reading tonight will be read from Colossians 3:16 and 17. Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God the Father through him. Good evening and welcome again. We're grateful for your presence. We are going to be talking tonight about what the Bible has to say as it relates to instrumental music in our worship. We have been looking at the subject of worship in the last few weeks, and we have been in the last several weeks talking specifically about the various acts of worship. And there are five specific acts that are addressed in the New Testament, and tonight we're going to be talking about instrumental music. Jared, several weeks ago, discussed the subject of singing in worship to God. And we have been privileged tonight to sing and to make melody in our hearts to the Lord. And as was read a moment ago by Tanner, we are to sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. And so tonight we're going to be thinking about what the Bible has to say about instrumental music. And there are a lot of questions that people have as it relates to this subject, and we want to look at what the Bible does say. Really what we're going to do, we're going to look at this subject from two, I guess, two viewpoints. First of all, we want to ask the question, what does the Scripture say? And first and foremost, that really is the most important question. What does the Bible have to say about this subject? And then the second question that we're going to ask, what does scholarship say? And we're going to look at what some individuals in days gone by, what they have written. And we're going to look at their studies and see what they have said about this subject. I do want to mention that there, there are copies of the lesson tonight in the foyer. And if you did not get a copy of the lesson, I want to encourage you to, to please feel free to get one. It may be that you want to share this with your friends and neighbors, family members. Uh, we would be happy for you to do that. So tonight as we think about what the Bible says about instrumental music in our worship, we begin by asking the question, what, what does Scripture have to say about this subject? When we emphasize the importance of Scripture, we are talking about the inspiration of the Bible. And this is really an appeal to inspiration because ultimately... Wherever we land on this subject, we want to make sure that what we say and what we believe and what we practice coincides with the New Testament. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4 at verse 11, If any man speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 said, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. The scriptures that we're appealing to, they are God-breathed. God is the one that has given us his word. And so we're going to be appealing to what the Bible has to say. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Peter tells us that God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Everything that we need to know about life and godliness has been revealed in Scripture. And so as we appeal to inspiration, there are some things that maybe we would do well to think about. First of, first of all, we want to talk about the principle of authority in our worship. 
When we talk about authority in the realm of religion, we understand and we believe that the ultimate authority is what the Bible has to say. Now, the scriptures tell us that Jesus has been vested with all authority. The Lord himself said in Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority or all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. In Matthew chapter 17 at verse 5, God the Father, when Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John, God the Father said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear him. And so whatever the Lord has to say, whatever this book has to say about this subject, we want to make sure that we listen attentively and put that into practice. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 at verse 6, the Apostle Paul admonishes us to not go beyond the things which are written. That is, we're not to go beyond what has been revealed in the sacred scriptures. And then finally, I think about what Jesus said in John 4, verses 23 and 24, when he said that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now in verse 23, Jesus said, the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is interested in people worship, worshiping him, absolutely. But his desire, his mandate is that we worship him in spirit, that is with the right attitude, and in truth, and that would be by his authority, the authority of scripture, or by his word. So, as we think about this subject, let me, let me submit unto you or suggest that Jesus never commanded the use of instrumental music in our worship. Now, you and I today, we live under what has been called the law of Christ, Galatians chapter 6 at verse 2. James calls it the perfect law of liberty in James 1.25. It's called the law of liberty in James 2 at verse 12. So what we're appealing to is the law of Christ. We're not talking about the law of Moses. We're not talking about the patriarchal law, but rather we are looking exclusively at what the New Testament says. And I would add this, that there are a lot of times when you begin talking about this subject with friends and neighbors and coworkers and classmates, they will automatically race back to the book of Psalms and say, well, didn't David in the Psalms enjoin people to worship God using instruments of music? And the answer would be yes. But remember, the book of Psalms is not in the New Testament. The book of Psalms is an Old Testament book. And we're talking about practices that are to take place under the law of Christ, the new dispensation. The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. That is, a New Testament. Jesus today is the one who regulates us by his authority through his word. He has left us his will. That will has been preserved in the form of the New Testament. And I would, I would encourage all of us when we talk to people, when we sit down and discuss this subject, that we remind people, look, we're talking exclusively about the New Testament. There are a lot of practices that took place under the Old Covenant that are not practiced today. And, and so when you look back to the Old, old Covenant, you see that Old Covenant was replaced. It was nailed to the cross, as Paul said in Colossians 2 at verse 14. And so that covenant has been done away with. It's been nailed to the cross. We're not under it any longer. Now, as we think about the law of Christ, there, there are a couple of things that I would encourage you to consider. 
First of all, we want to, to think about generic and specific commands. In the scriptures, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there are generic commands and there are specific commands. I want to illustrate it, first of all, by looking at an Old Testament example. And then we're going to look at what the New Testament has to say about worship, particularly as it relates to our subject. Let me just call attention to Genesis chapter 6, Noah and the ark. You remember when God decreed that he was going to destroy the world by means of a flood? God told Noah in Genesis 6 verse 14 to build an ark of gopher wood. Now, had God said, Noah, I want you to build an ark using wood, that would have been what? That would have been generic, wouldn't it? But God said, I want you to build an ark using gopher wood. That's very specific. So when God said, I want you to build an ark of gopher wood, that excluded every other type of wood. Now, sometimes individuals will ask the question, what, what was gopher wood? And no one really knows. Uh, but, but the point is that generically, God could have said, I want you to build an ark and use wood. But God very specifically said, I want you to build an ark and I want you to use gopher wood. Now, in verse 22 of Genesis chapter 6, here's what God said about Noah. Moses, of course, is writing this. Moses was inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen the first five books of the Old Testament. And the Bible says, thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him. So did he. So what did Noah do? Noah complied with the will of Almighty God. Now the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 6 verse 9 and following that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah enjoyed the blessings of God's grace, but in order for him to appropriate the blessings of that grace, what did he have to do? He had to obey the will of God. Faith and obedience go hand in hand. So, as we think about generic and specific commands, that's an Old Testament illustration or example. But let's think for a minute about our worship today. By way of, of a generic command, God could have said, I want you to make music. Well, if God had said, I want you to make music, that could have encompassed many forms or types of music. But God was very specific, wasn't he? God said, I want you to sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. Paul said in Colossians chapter 3 at verse 16, sing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That is a specific command. Let me illustrate it, let, let me illustrate it like this. If, if I were to ask you to go and to buy me an automobile, if I said go buy me a car, well, you would be at liberty to go buy any kind of car you, you decided on. But if I said, now, I want you to go buy me a Ford automobile, then that, that's very specific. That means you're not at liberty to go out and buy a Toyota, a Honda, a Chevrolet, or any other make. And so, generically, if I had said, I want you to buy me an automobile, well, you, could, you would be at liberty to buy any automobile you chose. But if I said, I want you to buy a Ford, well, that's very specific. So what we're, what we're talking about is very specific in nature. Now there's another principle I want you to, to consider along these lines, and that is the silence of the scriptures. Sometimes individuals will say, well, God never said specifically, thou shalt not use instruments of music in worship to God. Well, that's true, he didn't, but he didn't have to. 
Why is that? Because he's already told us exactly what kind of music he wants. That's singing. So we go back to the Old Testament for another illustration. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 at verse 8, God set apart the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant before the Lord, to stand before him, to minister unto him, to bless in his name to this day. Now that's what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8. So what was God saying? He was setting apart the tribe of Levi to function in a priestly capacity under the old covenant. Well, could someone from another tribe function in that capacity? Well, the answer would be no. Why? Because God said, I want the tribe of Levi to do that. When God said, I want those who are from the tribe of Levi to minister to me, to bear the Ark of the Covenant, that excluded every other tribe. And you can read about those tribes in Genesis chapter 49. Those who belonged to the other tribes, they didn't have to ask Moses, well, can we serve in a priestly capacity? Why is that? Because they understood that when God the Father said, those who are of the tribe of Levi, they are to minister to me, that excluded every other tribe. Now in Hebrews chapter 7, there's an interesting passage of scripture that relates, I believe, to the silence of scripture. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12, here's what the writer said, for the priesthood being changed, there is of necessity a change also of the law. Jesus serves today as a priest, does he not? Well, under the old covenant, those who served as priests, they came forth from what tribe? The tribe of Levi, didn't they? Well, in verse 13, here's what the writer said. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe to which no man has officiated at the altar. Now, I want you to listen to what he says in verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord sprang or arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Moses didn't say anything about somebody serving as a priest from the tribe of Judah. Jesus today serves as a priest. He is a priest where? In heaven. Well, you remember what he said in verse 12? If there is a change in the priesthood, there has to be a change of the law. Why? Because under the old covenant, only those who were the tribe of Levi could function in that capacity. And so in order for Jesus to serve as a priest from the tribe of Judah, there had to be a change of the law. And so again, we we talk about the tribe of Judah. Moses never said a thing about that. So what about the authority of Scripture? We believe, we appeal to the authority of what the Bible has to say because ultimately what really matters is what Scripture says. And then there is the principle of a pattern in our worship to God. Now, there are a lot of people in our world today and some within the church that have a problem with what they call pattern theology. There have been some that have gone on record as saying, I reject pattern theology. Well, that's rather interesting because the Bible teaches that this book that we hold in our hands is a pattern. For example, in Romans chapter 6, verse 17, Paul said, but God be thanked that whereas you were the servants of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. The word form simply means a pattern. There is a pattern or a form of doctrine to which we 
believe and obey in order to become New Testament Christians. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, the apostle Paul said, hold fast the form, that is, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you've heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So there is a pattern. This pattern is what we call the New Testament. That's why we're talking about the law of Christ, the perfect law of liberty, the law of liberty. We're talking about this book. And this book is what is to regulate our behavior as Christians. It's what is to regulate our work in the church. It's what is to regulate our worship to Almighty God. Now again, we go back to the Old Testament. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 8, verse 5, the writer takes us back, and really if you look at the book of Hebrews, the writer is simply stressing the superiority of the law of Christ to the law of Moses. Some of the Hebrew Christians, they were on the verge of, of going back to Judaism. Some had probably already gone back to Judaism. And the writer is making the case, why would you go back to an inferior system? But in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, God said to Moses, see that you make all things according to the pattern revealed to you. Now you can go back and read in Exodus chapter 25 with the building or the erection of the tabernacle or the sanctuary. What, what did Moses use? He used a divine pattern. He followed that blueprint. All we're saying is that the New Testament is a blueprint. It's a pattern. It is a set of instructions for us to follow. And so we, we teach, we believe, we practice that this book is a pattern. Now, I said that Jesus never commanded the use of instruments of music in worship. He did not. Nowhere in the New Testament do you find our Lord commanding us to use instruments of music. Furthermore, the apostles never sanctioned the usage of instruments of music in worship. You can read from, from Matthew to the book of Revelation, and you will find that there, there is no precedence for the usage of instruments of music in worship to Almighty God. There's another principle I want to call attention to, and that is the principle of solo. And that's the Greek word that is found five times in the New Testament and is translated sing and making melody. The word, here's what the word means. To pluck, to twang, to pull, to cause to vibrate. I believe that what, what the Apostle Paul was saying when he used this word was that those of us who belong to the body of Christ in our worship to God, the instrument that is to be plucked or played is the human heart. That, that's what Paul is saying. Now, having looked at some of the passages of Scripture that relate to instrumental music, I want to ask this question. How important is it for us to make sure that we follow what the New Testament teaches? Well, John said in Revelation 22, verse 14, blessed are those that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and enter through the gates into the city. In Revelation 22, 18 and 19, the apostle John, and John was writing the last inspired book that comprises our New Testament. And John in the Revelation said that we're not to add to nor take from his holy word. Now sometimes individuals will say, well, contextually, he's talking about the book of Revelation. I would freely admit that. But that principle runs throughout both old, the Old and New Testaments. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, Moses said, Add thou not unto my word, neither diminish aught from it. In other words, what God was saying through Moses, you're not to add to my word, you're not to take away from my word. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 6, again, we're not to add to the word of God. Musical instruments in worship to God are an addition. Those who would employ musical instruments of musical instruments in worship to Almighty God are going beyond the authority of Christ. They're going beyond what is written. Now we talk about wanting to follow the blueprint or the pattern that has been revealed. If that's the case, then what we have to do is appeal to the New Testament. You remember when Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15? He said, but if I tarry long that you may know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. God in heaven has given us a pattern so that we can know the organizational structure of the church. He's given us a pattern whereby we can know what to do to enter the church. He's given us a pattern that, that designates the work of the church. He's given us a pattern that delegates unto us the worship of the church. Nowhere in scripture has God given man the latitude to do as he pleases in the realm of worship. You can, go back to the old, you can go back to the Old Testament, you can look at the New Testament, nowhere do you find God giving man the, the latitude to engage in worship as he pleases. God in heaven is the one that dictates how we are to worship him. Now, I think sometimes the, the problem is we forget we are members of the human family. We're not on God's advisory committee when it comes to how we worship him. God in heaven has settled how we are to worship him. He settled that a long time ago. What he expects from us is that we submit to his will, that we appeal to what the Bible has to say. We talk about thus saith the Lord. That's what we're doing. We're appealing to what scripture has to say. Now, I want, you, I want you to think with me in the second place about what scholarship has to say. Now, when we look at this lesson, ultimately, everything that we say has to go back to what Scripture says. We're going to look at what scholarship says because we need to see what other people have said about this subject. And what I want to do, I want to quote for you some individuals some are members, or were members, I should say, of denominations. One, in particular, a member of the church. And I want you to consider what some of these people have said. Everett Ferguson wrote a book many years ago entitled Acapella Music in the Public Worship of the Church. When I was, when I was in Lipscomb many years ago, this was one of the textbooks that I had to use. It's an old book, but it is chock full of information. And Brother Ferguson looks at this subject from, from the vantage point of scholarship. And he delves deeply into this subject. And so here's what he said in the preface of his book on page three. During my graduate study days at Harvard, I lived in the same dormitory with a Greek Orthodox student who is a graduate of the University of Athens and a candidate for an advanced degree at Harvard. I asked him if it was correct 
that the Greek Orthodox churches do not use instrumental music in their worship. He said yes. Then I inquired as to the reason why. His reply was most interesting to me. Listen to what he said. We do not use instrumental music because it is not in the New Testament. And it is contrary to the nature of Christian worship. Now, the gentleman that made this statement was not a member of the church. And what he was saying is, we do not use instrumental music in our worship to God because it's foreign to the teaching of the New Testament. And so here's what Brother Ferguson said. By this he stated my case exactly for unaccompanied church music. Now listen to a second quotation from Everett Ferguson. And this is taken from page 81 in the same book regarding the introduction of instrumental music in worship. Here's what he said. It is quite late before there is evidence of instrumental music. First, the organ employed in the public worship of the church. Recent studies put the introduction of instrumental music even later than the dates found in reference books. It was perhaps as late as the 10th century when the organ was played as a part of the service. This makes instrumental music one of the late innovations of the medieval Catholic Church. When introduced in the Middle Ages, the organ was still not a part of the liturgy proper. That is, it did not initially accompany the hymn service. The type of chant employed left no place for instrumental accompaniment until new styles of music developed. And so based on what history has to say, what Brother Ferguson was, what, what he was saying and what he was, was uh, I guess, concluding based on his study, instrumental music is hundreds of years too late in terms of the usage of it in worship to Almighty God. Some 10 centuries late. Now again, when we talk about our practices, our practices have to be rooted in Scripture. There are a lot of things that have come, that have filtered into the religious world that are completely foreign to New Testament Christianity. There are a lot of practices, there are a lot of things that are being advocated by people in the religious world at large, and if you look at them, in light of what Scripture says, the conclusion is they don't harmonize. What I appeal to people to do, and I think that all of us who preach and who teach and those, who, those of us who are members of the church, what we encourage people to do, to do is search the scriptures. That's what Jesus said in John 5 verse 40. The Bereans of old, they were commended because they searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Never take the word of a preacher or teacher at face value but make sure that what they say coincides with what this book says. And the reason is because preachers and teachers can be wrong. We are, we are fallible human beings. God in heaven is infallible. This book is infallible. And so what we encourage, investigate. Truth has nothing to fear. I would investigate people, listen, raise the hood, study, 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 keep studying. And hopefully and prayerfully, you'll see the truth of Almighty God. 
Let me give you a third quotation. John Calvin, who was one of the founders of the Presbyterian Church, along with John Knox, in his commentary on Psalm 33, had this to say. Musical instruments in celebrating the praises of God would be no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting of lamps, and the restoration of the other shadows of the law. The Papists, therefore, have foolishly borrowed this, as well as many other things, from the Jews. Now let that sink in for a minute. Here's somebody of whom is attributed the founding of the Presbyterian Church. And this man is saying instrumental music is foreign to the teaching of the New Testament. Let me give you a fourth quotation. Adam Clark, a renowned Methodist commentator, was against the usage of instruments of music in worship to God. And here's what he said in his commentary on 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 25. The whole spirit, soul, and genius of Christian religion are against this. And those who know the church of God best and what constitutes its genuine spiritual state know that these things have been introduced as a substitute for the life and power of religion. And where they prevail most, there is least of the power of Christianity. And he says, away with such from the worship of that infinite spirit who requires his followers to worship him in spirit and in truth. For to no such worship are those instruments friendly. So what are we saying? We're saying that two of the leaders of mainline Protestantism, denominational churches, were voicing out against the usage of instruments of music in worship. I, I would just ask this question. M many of us have friends that are in denominations. Wonder how many people who are a part of the Presbyterian church know that their founder was against the usage of instrumental music in worship. Those who belong to the Methodist church I wonder how many of those people, I wonder how many of those people know that one of the old mainline commentators, Adam Clark, and he was, he was by all means a very good student in many respects, though I don't agree with everything he said, he was a good student of scripture in many ways. He was against the usage of instrumental music. And why was that? Because he believed it was foreign to the spirit of New Testament Christianity. Let me give you a fifth Quotation, Charles Spurgeon. If you've ever read anything about Charles Spurgeon, you'll know that he was one of the greatest Baptist preachers to have ever lived. If I'm not mistaken, I read where he preached on a regular basis to some 10,000 people weekly. This guy was a giant among the Baptists. And he opposed instrumental music. He preached in the 1800s for the Metropolitan Baptist Tabernacle in London. In his comments on the 42nd Psalm, taken from the treasury of David, here's what he said. David appears to have had a peculiarly tender remembrance of the singing of the pilgrims. And assuredly, it is the most delightful part of worship 
and that which comes nearest to the adoration of heaven. What a degradation to supplant the intelligent song of the whole congregation by the theatrical prettiness of a quartet, the refined niceties of a choir, or the blowing off of wind from inanimate bellows and pipes. Now listen to him. We might as well pray by machinery as praise by it. Now you just think about that. This guy was a giant in the 1800s among the Baptist people. And what he was saying in the long ago, instrumental music is foreign to the nature of New Testament Christianity. Now please hear me very, very carefully. I do, not, I do not believe in denominationalism. I believe in New Testament Christianity. And my plea to people in the world today is to follow the teaching of Christ, become what they were in the first century. That is, they were Christians. Wear the name of Christ. Belong to the church that you read about in, in the New Testament. But when you go back and you look at what Calvin and what Spurgeon and what Clark and others have said, you know what you have to conclude? They were spot on. They knew exactly what they were talking about as it related to instrumental music and worship to God. They may have missed it in some areas, but they got it right in this area. It would be surprising indeed to many, many people in the Baptist, Presbyterian, and Lutheran churches to know that some of the people that were renowned in their denomination opposed the very thing that they do today. They would be surprised. Now let me ask this question. Why, why do I believe instrumental music and worship to God is foreign to the New Testament? I believe it's foreign because it's not found in Scripture. Instrumental music and worship to God is sinful. It's not authorized. Now, I appreciate what these men have written. I appreciate what Brother Ferguson said, and I, I appreciate what these other men have said. But I'm not against it because they were against it. I'm against it because Jesus Christ never commanded it. The apostles never sanctioned it, and the New Testament church never practiced it. That's why I'm against it. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, we don't have to be ugly or haughty. We don't have to talk to people in an arrogant way, but we need to let them know what the truth says. And the truth of Almighty God says instrumental music and worship is not authorized. If it's not authorized, it doesn't have God's blessings. And so the appeal today, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That means do it by his authority. Whatever we do in the realm of faith and practice, we better make sure we better know that it has a thus saith the Lord stamped all over it. And if it doesn't, we need to reject it. In closing, I would remind you that when Paul and Silas went to Berea, 
They had been in the city of Thessalonica. They had been charged with turning the world upside down. When they got to Berea, what did they do there? They preached the gospel. And the Bible says of those Bereans of old that they searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. The apostle Paul was an inspired man. And what did they do? They checked him out. Look at what the Bible says. Make sure that your faith and practice harmonize with this book. If it's not found in this book, reject it. If it is found in this book, then practice it. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, our, our plea, our encouragement to you, come to Christ. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus said, except you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins, John 8, 24. If you die in your sins, Jesus said, where I am there, you cannot come. And then you need to repent. That's what Peter said on Pentecost Day, Acts 2, 38. Confess his name before others, Acts 8, verse 37. Be immersed in a watery grave of baptism so that every sin can be washed away, Acts 22, 16. The Lord will then add you to the church, Acts 2, 47. And if you're found faithful on the final day, God will bestow on you the crown of life, Revelation 2, 10. If you're unfaithful to his cause, we beg, we plead for you tonight. Make up your mind. You're not going to serve the devil any longer. You're coming home. You're coming back to a loving God who will abundantly pardon, 1 John 1, 9. Come as we stand and sing.